Oh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Martini's Moscato. I hope you're having a great Thursday afternoon, evening. That's when this uh, show should be airing is Thursday at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, Wednesday here, just to let you in on a little production secret. I am not having a martini. I'm on scotch uh, this evening, which is a little more true to my roots. I've got the Lagra, Lagra what am I drinking? Lafroig, uh, the 10 year, which I enjoy. I hope you have a drink. Join me. What are we talking about this week? Martinis with Scott, by the way, a show about winning momentum in life and in business. People ask me, why do I do this show? And it's been a journey for me. I think we're about, a, well, this is episode uh, 68, I believe. Don't hold me to that, but I believe it's 68. And we're into a sort of a year and a quarter of, uh, of this production. And so it's been a journey. And my reasons for doing it, the benefits that I get out of it have changed uh, throughout the process. But, um, um, you know, I started it because in business, I travel a lot. I always have my headphones in. I'm listening to podcasts, um, audio, because I'm, you know, I'm on an airplane or walking through a terminal or driving or doing whatever. Um, I even have them as I lay down at night. I'm listening to something almost all the time. And I love, I love podcasts. And I listen to a variety of them. I listen to some religiously. Um, uh, I listen to Gary Vee a lot these days. I just have been listening to Scott Adams for uh, a couple of years now. Uh, so those would be two that I very much enjoy. Although both of them bother me from time to time when I stop listening, stop listening. But the the point is, I started with Martinis with Scott, really just to learn about the uh, learn about the medium and learn about. Uh, how this works and and uh, and to have some fun. So that that's why I started out on this journey. And for me, I started. Uh, I've always been interested in a in a certain form of value added content um, as a marketing program for or marketing strategy for my businesses. So I started in 1994 a corporate finance house in Ottawa, Canada, by the name of Merchant Capital, which at you know some point grew to a number of bankers and was uh, sold and wound up in uh, 2005. And when I started in Ottawa, there was a, a local newspaper uh, called Silicon Valley North, as I recalled, and it was a weekly journal. It was free and it serviced the high-tech industry in Ottawa. And I used to run what they call tombstone ads in the, in the newspaper. And so if you're, you know, in the investment banking world, if you're doing transactions, a tombstone is a, you know, so-and-so sold to, so, so you know, XYZ sold to ABC company. Uh, the transaction was like this. And, you know, Scott's firm advice on the transaction. And you see those tombstones in the, you know, in the journal or in Canada, the National Post or Globe Mail all the time. And we used to have a, um, I used to put a header on the tombstones that said in big, bold letters, results, not promises. And um, they'll run the tombstone. And we were... We were so busy and successful doing deals back then because it was just the heyday of uh, of small tech deals and nobody else was doing that investment banking work. So we literally had a new one really every week. Um, maybe we circled through a uh, cycle through a few, but we you know we had a new one pretty much every week. And people would ask me, "Do you get phone calls from those? Does that advertising work?" And I would say, uh, "Well, obviously the truth," but I would just say no. Uh, not once in my life did I ever have a phone call once during that period did I ever have a phone call 
off one of those ads and nor did I expect a phone call off one of those ads. What I expected was that when I met somebody who was in need of those services, they would, they would have recognized the brand, they would recognize my name and it would shorten the sales cycle because I established myself and my firm as an expert in those sorts of transactions that we were trying to sell at the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a, a CEO of a tech company of an entrepreneur's uh, office and they needed some capital or they needed a transaction. Um, and I was introduced to them by some of the source, but the CEO would open a drawer of their desk and pull out all of those tombstones that were cut out of the newspaper because they were of interest and they showed a, you know, a value add in that space. And it was highly effective for what I thought it was. It wasn't, a, it wasn't bird dogging, it wasn't lead generation, but it sure shortened my sales cycle. Um, when I started range of corporate advisors in Toronto in, uh, I don't know what year that was, let's call it 2007, I started a blog uh, and that again was just experimenting, uh, getting into writing um, and adding value. And what I found was as a one, two, three person advisory firm, when we started up, you know, I was getting 6,000 hits a month on our website, whereas a competitor of my uh, boutique finance firm, you know, with a static website was getting whatever, three, five, 10. Now, maybe a good chunk of my 6,000 were robots. I have no idea, probably true, but there was a lot of activity and it was the same thing. Nobody ever called because of the blog posts, but for years I would meet people interested in my services and, you know, they Google your name, they do their research and they would quote back to me out of my blog post, hey, I read that article that you wrote about shareholder loans and so on and so forth, and it was really interesting and relevant to me when you said this, I found that really helpful. That's how every meeting started for years. How quickly or how much does that shorten the sales cycle when you meet a, when you meet a new prospect? So to me, this podcast, Martinis with Scott, is an extension of the exact same thing. That's why I started. I wanted to learn about the, the space and um, this is just a video version of the blog posts that I used to write back in the day. That was my thinking. Now, there's been so many, uh, this, is, this is hard doing this, to be honest with you, to, to carve out the time, to think about what you want to say, to try and find the right fit in terms of value added for you as an audience, um, to, not, to, to make it conversational, engaging and useful for you versus uh, salesy. You know, like when I, sometimes I, I fear when I get guests on, that it's really becoming commercial for them and that they have expectations about their marketing. Well, I didn't get a phone call off of your show. Well, that's not why we did it, buddy. And so, <laughs> so uh, I have those sorts of problems, but um, one thing that I have found in terms of ancillary benefits is that when I have a guest on and when we were doing them by Zoom when we had drinks live and we do a show, um, I would take them out for dinner uh, later and I had a friend for life, even if I didn't know them before or knew them, but not very well. Wow, what a bonding experience this is uh, for everybody in my industry. And so that's that's been a, a huge benefit for me and my business. Another benefit is, you know, as I'm getting older, I turn 55 this year. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Um, you know, I have a lot of knowledge uh, that I'd like to share and add value in, in younger entrepreneurs' lives. Um, add value with small business owners, um, how they can make more money, how they can get into trouble if they're struggling. And so I see that as a, you know, as a business, as a societal benefit that I can add to. But 
with all that being said and all that true, uh, being true, I had a call this week which really hammered home for me the reason that I think this is this is just really important and where I can add value um, into into the next generation of entrepreneurs um, into the society as a whole because I think this is a major issue. So let me tell you about that. In the, uh, in the U.S., there are nearly 30 million small businesses uh, employing 47.8% of the U.S. workforce. Now, in the U.S., if you're a Canadian listener, because we, we were in both countries roughly split 50-50, you know, the U.S. is defining uh, a small business as 500 employees, which is a hell of a lot of employees if you're a Canadian business that's well into mid-market. Canadian businesses would define this as as uh, 100 employees, I think, would be a small business. But in the U.S., there's 30 million employing 47.8% of the workforce. It's just a huge force in the U.S. and it's a huge force uh, in Canada. Here's your failure rates on small businesses. In the first year, 21.5% fail. Second year, 30%. Fifth year, 50%. And that stat is consistent really throughout, uh, you know, any jurisdiction that you look at, uh, including Canada, uh, about half of the businesses fail in the first five years. And then most of the stats stop there. But, you know, this trend continues. By the 10th year, 70% of businesses have, have failed. And if you really dig into it and you, you stop looking at just failing, which I define as closing a business, but they don't really tell you what failure means, in the stats, but I believe it means they go bankrupt or they abandon their lease or whatever it is. But another way to look at this is only about 10% on most of the stats you look at, maybe as high as 20% in some other stats, only 10 to 20% of these businesses ever pay, ever pay their owners a living wage, right? The the median uh, wage in the U.S. for a small business owner is somewhere around $50,000, but only 10 to 20% ever pay a living wage at all. I mean, this is a difficult life to lead. You work 18 hour days, you work uh, around the clock. If you're gonna succeed, you need to sacrifice. And so so those are the stats. And, and I think that by adding some value and some insight as to how to manage a, be- a business better, and how to gain that winning momentum. Maybe we can make a dent in some of those stats. Now, you compare those stats, uh, which is reality, to the podcast world and to the social media world, which even as an old fellow, I've been diving into, and that's what you know drove me to this space. And what I learned and found out to my surprise was that 100%, well, 99% of business podcasts are convincing a younger generation you know, 18, 21 year olds, somewhere in that space, 25 year olds to not have a career, but to be an entrepreneur. Okay? I mean, not have a normal job and a career in, in the old school sort of definition of what a career is and to be an entrepreneur and to and to sell more, to create content and and live a purposeful, meaningful, free life. Right. That's what this is all about. That is the pitch that we're giving to this generation. And compare those two things. We're trying to drive everybody uh, of a younger generation into entrepreneurship and side hustles and all that sort of stuff. Yet the the statistical reality is that is that only not, only ten percent of these are ever going to pay a wage. 
right? And 50% are going to fail in five years and 70% are going to fail in 10 years. And it's going to be a miserable experience, a great learning experience, but a miserable experience. And no one ever tells these people that. No one tells these, these younger next generation people what is in front of them. Instead, they just pitch them this lifestyle. Uh, and to me, it's a bit of a sham. Listen, I think 100% of the people should be entrepreneurs. I'm all over that. But you have to go in with a passion. You have to go in with your head up. You have to understand that the world is against you. The statistics are against you. And that with a little bit of education and some strategies as to how to manage a business, you've got a much better shot at this. And, and that's what this show uh, has evolved to be for me. Why did I start all that? I had a call from a uh, young lady uh, earlier this week. I'm not going to tell you the name or the business or even the jurisdiction because I want to walk you through some real numbers and so it needs to be uh, protected uh, for her sake. I don't know how old this person is. I'm going to guess she's uh, somewhere in the 30, a little younger, a little older, somewhere around <coughs> uh, that range, probably a little younger. Uh, really nice person, very smart, smart person. And about, actually, I don't even know how long ago, but I'm going to say a year ago, she started a business uh, with a partner of hers and her partner is another woman who I think is older. And in the space they chose to go in, uh, the young lady who called me um, had experience in that space. It was her dream, it was her passion to own her own business in that space. And this, this partner that she brought in, we'll just call that other person the partner. Uh, the partner was older, more experienced and, and uh, my young lady, let's give her name. I'm going to call her Mary. My uh, uh, Mary um, lacked confidence, like so many people do. I believe we did a show on Martinez with Scott about not having a partner because you lack confidence. That's a specific issue. That's uh, you know, uh, having your house in order is a cornerstone of the Martinez with Scott message of my message uh, to the viewership here. And so uh, at some point I'll redo that, or we'll go back and we'll find it for you. Maybe we'll get a link in the description, but. Um, as I often see, Mary took on a partner um, really because she felt the partner had more experience in the industry and that was a good way to hedge her bets, basically. Um, the entrepreneur Mary was able at a young age uh, to go out to a friend, um, a family friend or some sort of personal friend and borrow $80,000, which she refers to as a construction loan because this was a retail uh, business that they were moving into. Uh, so she borrowed 80000 from this person, and this person said, hey, Mary, just pay me back when the business can. There's no real terms to this. And by the way, I'm lending it to you, Mary, and Mary, you lend it to this business, to this corporation, because they set up this, uh, The her and the partner set it up in a corporation. And so she did. She took the 80000 from her friend. She put the 80000 into the business, uh, without a loan document, without taking any security, without doing anything like that. And and they use that to do their leasehold fit-ups and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, over the course of a year, uh, she the business has paid uh, Mary back $20,000 and Mary's paid her friend back $20,000. So now she owes $60,000. And, of course, the link is from Mary to the friend. It's not from the business to the friend. Um, but there's a $60,000 debt there. In addition, she put in another $80,000 um, 
through in cash from her savings and she holds a, a real job and and also sort of in-kind contributions to the company like she had another friend who contributed some stuff that they need to de need that they needed and they would have had to buy and so there's another eighty thousand dollars and her partner put in eighty thousand dollars more or less as well so now you've got three eighties uh, which is $240,000, which is the capital that was invested in this business. So you've got uh, 280s being $160,000 uh, to Mary, of which $20,000 was paid back. So she's net $140,000. And the partner has put in eighty, dollars And so that's the debt obligations of the company. There were some other little credit cards and stuff like that, but no bank loans. So basically, materially speaking, that was it. The two shareholders are 50-50 in the shares. Mary is the president, the partner is the vice president, and they are both directors. There's two directors uh, in this company, so there will always be at a, a logjam. They have a retail storefront uh, in a mall with no personal guarantees. Of course, they opened their business right before COVID, so things have been pretty much shut down, but she didn't seem too stressed about that situation. Uh, they don't really have any assets in this business other than some inventory, which at cost would be about $50,000. And we made up in our discussion a liquidation number of, say, $30,000, which is probably not true. It's probably five dollars or $10,000. But, you know, hypothetically speaking, uh, $30,000. She said that the business uh, is breaking even. But when I press on that more, it's, it's not paying either of the president or the vice president, uh, who are the only staff. Uh, any salaries at all, all it's paying is is uh, the rent and you're able to buy some more inventory when you sell some of your current inventory. So it's not breaking even, it's struggling. And you remember I talked about, you know, as few as 10% of small businesses actually pay their owners any money at all, any money. And so not, not, not even a living wage, just any money. And so here's an example, not paying any money uh, at all to the owners. Um, Mary was talked into a business plan by her more experienced partner that Mary disagrees with. She didn't think they needed a storefront for this business and they clearly don't need a storefront for this business. So this is a, an entire expense that doesn't make any sense. Um, and as the year has unfolded, um, she has got into more and more arguments and log jams with her partners. Uh, they're fighting, things aren't going well in the business. Uh, according to her, her partner pisses off everyone that they deal with their, you know, their supply chain and their customers. And, you know, what it, it does, and, and that she has a different vision, for example, the, the storefront and what needs to be done. And, you know, what happens so often in these situations is someone like the partner as described to me is making business decisions for lifestyle and for ego, not necessarily for dollars and cents. And so you have this divide among the partnership. And by the way, it doesn't matter if the partner's a good person or a bad person. I'm talking to Mary in this example, and and that's her point of view, right? So, you know, if I talk to the other partner, maybe she has exactly the opposite point of view. Maybe it's Mary that she thinks is the bad person. I'm sure she does, right? So, but the point is, it doesn't matter. I'm being asked for advice uh, from Mary. So there's the problem. And the question posed to me was, you know, what's the process to buy somebody out, which in this situation, if you're experienced in business, if you've, if you're one of the professionals that's part of the audience here, uh, this is a question that's not even computing for you because 
you know, there's no value in the shares. Why would you be buying somebody out? And so we had a, a conversation about that. And I'm telling you this story to hammer home what I believe to be the, you know, the driving force behind Martini Swiscott and what I believe to be a significant societal issue in terms of pitching a younger generation that the key to freedom and purposeful lives and everything happy in the world is not work for the man and to be an entrepreneur. Whereas this story that I just told you is the result 90% of the time. And we need to find as a society a way, a way to bring those two, those two polars uh, opposites uh, or those two poles together. Also, I think this story just, it raises so many issues that have been topics on Martinis with Scott or some of our, our pillars for why I do this show and the, the message that I'm trying to communicate. And so I want to talk about a few of them uh, because there was a story and the struggle of this particular person who we have named Mary. So a couple of pieces of advice that I gave her. Number one, she keeps talking about a buyout of her partner and everything she said is, well, I did this and she did that and she did this and I did that. As if there was only two parties in this story. There are not. There are three parties in this story. There is Mary, there is the partner, and there is the corporate body, the corporation, the business itself. A corporation uh, is not only legally, but ought to be thought of as a individual party. Um, and the reason for that is I've coached on Martinis with Scott. I will continue to coach as a pillar of this is that when you're in a small business, when you're an entrepreneur, you have multiple hats and you need to treat those hats separately. They're not the same thing. What are Mary's hats in this situation? She wears the hat of a director. She is the director of the corporation. She wears a hat as an officer. She is the president of the corporation. She wears the hat of a shareholder because she is a 50% shareholder of this corporation. And she wears the hat as a lender because she advanced 80,000 twice, 160,000 of which 140,000 she's owed unsecured, okay, as a creditor of the corporation. Every one of those hats has different rights, responsibilities, and obligations, and you can't commingle them. You need to think about those rights, responsibilities, obligations separately um, if you are to make reasonable decisions. I've talked before on this channel, previous shows about a pecking order or express more formally a, a, um, a priority order for, for value. And that's the way you need to look at things when companies are effectively insolvent, which this company is. And, and the first in that order would be government withholdings of which there's none in this situation. Secured creditors, which is your bank, of which there's none in this situation. And then unsecured creditors as a big pot. And the unsecured, which is everybody in this situation. Okay, so the unsecured creditors are 140,000 to Mary, 80,000 to the partner. Whatever the lease is, which is current at the time, but in an insolvency would, would have an acceleration clause on the term and the credit cards, which are immaterial, okay? And so the pecking order, the priority um, is that basically everybody's what they call in law peri pursuit on the level playing field. They all get to participate in the assets. What are the assets? The assets are, we decided a liquidation value, $30,000. 
if I forget about the lease for a minute, that I'm just talking about the two parties, uh, which are, you know, 80,000 to one and 160 down to 140 for another, for round numbers, it's about two thirds, one third. And so out of that 30,000, about 20,000 would be properly uh, in a liquidation paid out to Mary and about 10,000 would be paid out to the partner. Nowhere in there was their value attributable to her shares or to the partner's shares. So let's think about that. What would your buyout, uh, I'm doing air quotes if you're on the podcast, what would your buyout be with your partner? What are you trying to buy? Are you trying to buy your debt? Are you trying to buy shares? Are you trying to do both? And exactly how does that conversation go? Do you go to Starbucks and say, I want to buy you out? There's only, the whole business is only worth uh, $30,000. And so here's a check for 10 because Perry Pursue on a level playing field, you know, if we were to split that money up pro rata, you would be 10. And what is that person going to say? Because apparently the partner's motivation is to keep the business. They each want to buy each other out. And, and what the partner's going to say is, no, no, no. Uh, first of all, I don't buy your math, but if I did buy your math, I'll just buy you out for 20. And now Mary, if she were to accept that, gets 20,000 uh, to which she gives to the lender, the friend who gave the construction loan. Uh, so now 60 minus 20, she still is old 40, yet she has no business anymore with which to pay the 40. And that becomes a personal, just a personal drain on her career now uh, going forward. So that's not a very fruitful conversation. So it's not a buyout. If you put your proper hats on, in this case, it's the lender hat, it's the creditor hat that dominates. And this is not an exercise to buy your partner out. This is an exercise to collect as much as you can on the on the $140,000 that you're still owed um, either now because the partner pays you or in the future because you come up with an arrangement to run this business and make a little bit of money and suck that money out into your pocket, okay? It's a change of thinking. You're not buying anybody out. You're trying to collect your 140 grand. It's really important and it's a different, <clears throat> it's a different mindset, okay? So you need to change your thinking was my advice to her. And the other piece was, she says, you know, Scott, this, this is my dream. This business was my dream to which I had to say, Mary, this, this industry, this idea, uh, being an entrepreneur and being in this space, that's your dream. This corporation is not your dream. Don't confuse the two. Okay. You don't have to buy the other person out to fulfill your dream. You can go do it elsewhere. All right. Just because this has been a failure, it was wrong from day one and was doomed, uh, doesn't mean, it just doesn't mean that you can't fulfill your dream. Don't confuse the two. Don't commingle them. You know, if you struggle in your business, there's another way to pursue your dream. Don't ride the Titanic down on, on, on the premise that it's your dream. It's not. Okay. Uh, and the other changing of thinking is that you know, we got hung up on this construction loan because she wants to buy the partner out because she wants to, you know, she wants to pay back this, this construction loan to her friend, the 80,000 that the fellow or this person lent to her. And, you know, we discussed the idea of a sunk cost and you need to understand sunk costs in business, which is that you've already lost, right? She admits that the business can't succeed when sucking the money out to pay back the construction loan. Even if things were great between the partnership, it still wasn't going to work. So there's no scenario where they're getting the, the, the remaining 60,000 out of this business anytime soon. 
which means that she's on the hook to the person that provided the money regardless. At a personal level, she's on the hook. And again, her job is just to get as much money out of the business as she possibly can. Um, and that means today, even if the business dies, or it means slowly over time, okay, but her decision about what to do with the business should not be influenced by what she owes her friend or her family friend, uh, because it's irrelevant, because it's a sunk cost. That's what a sunk cost is. Don't chase, don't chase uh, paying back an old debt or getting a return on investment from an old investment. Um, new decisions should not be influenced by money that's already spent. Okay, that's what the concept of a sunk cost is. So we talked about that. All right, <clears throat> so that to me was a uh, it was a two hour conversation. It was a, a, I just felt so bad for this person. She seemed so nice and so bright yet in this terrible situation to which there's really, there's no good answer. So we talked about strategy. When you're negotiating in a very difficult situation, I think you need, you need three things. You need to, you need to create a trigger to get things moving. You need to set the table in terms of a thought process and expectations on value. Um, and then you need to be nimble and not overthink the strategy because these things can go a million different ways. And even me who's been doing this for 30 years, you can't really forecast, even in this relatively simple situation from my perspective, you know, it's like playing chess, except I, you know, I can think three moves ahead, but I can't think 15 moves ahead uh, because this is not a, a defined board. Right there's there's a, a million different irrational directions that this can go, and it's a waste of time to try and figure that out. Okay, what you need to be is have a team together that's that's smart and quick and can react um, as situations arise. Thinking a little bit down the board, you know, into the next moves, but you can't just sort of decision tree out to an end game on this. That doesn't work. What do I mean by trigger? A trigger means. Why is something going to change now? How do you get things moving? One of the reasons I love investment banking with troubled companies, mergers and acquisitions, refinancings, is because you need to do the deal now or you're going bankrupt, right? Like sometimes you need to do them in a week. Sometimes you have three months or six months, but it's not. Picture an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur, a family-owned business, someone who's at the end of their career, heading into 60, 70, 80, they want to retire, and everything's great. When do they sell their business? So, you know, the, the question that comes up is always, why now? I'm not going to do it today. I'll do it. I'll do it Friday, right? I'll do it next week. I'll get around to it the time after. I don't want to hire you right now. I don't want to sell to this competitor that's, a, that's, you know, talking to me right now. I'll do it later, right? Because there's no trigger on this. If you're a trouble company, you've got a trigger. The bank's coming. Your creditors are coming. You're losing money. You can't afford to put any in. Now, now you need to move. And if you're insolvent, if you're in trouble, like uh, our, our Mary is in this situation, you need to create a trigger. Otherwise, how do you ever have a reasonable discussion with partner and and bring her to the table on a basis that's friendly to you? Now, creating a trigger. What the hell does that mean, Scott? It's not pretty, okay? And it's not for everyone. So here's here were three ideas that I came up with to create a trigger. And... You know, some of them may not even be all that ethical and therefore you shouldn't do them. Okay. But in the spirit of brainstorming, uh, here's what I came up with. Number one, which is what I recommended 
is she should serve a demand on the company, uh, a formal demand uh, written in legal language. And a demand letter says, uh, hey, corporation, which is a party to this, uh, you owe me $140,000, pay me in 10 days or I'm going to bankrupt you. Right? And we're going to sell the assets and I'm going to get whatever I can. That's basically what a, a demand letter says. And by doing that, you've started a clock and you've created a trigger. Okay, so there's one way to do that. Remember, forget about her having shares. Forget about her being an employee and the president. Forget about her being a director. If she was just a lender, if you were a lender to this business and it owes you 140 grand and there was no way to pay you, wouldn't you go to your letter and send a demand, go to your lawyer and send a demand letter? Of course you would. Okay, and when you do that, it starts the clock and it gets everybody's attention. Okay, so that's number one. Here's another way, fire the partner. She's president, the partner's vice president. Presidents can fire vice presidents, throw her out, okay? Now, what could the partner do to stop that? I don't think anything, because there's two directors, no one has control, the directors hire and fire the president, so she can't fire the president from a director position, there's no shareholders agreement, there's nothing, so it's fair game. Just fire the president. I disagree with everything you're doing. You're pissing everybody off. Get lost. Well, that would get her attention, right? That would be a trigger for a discussion. The third thing I, I suggested was scoop, not, no, not suggested, throughout as a hypothetical way to trigger something is scoop the cash. There was about $40,000 in the bank account. Now, where's that 40,000 going? They're not paying themselves. So it's going to rent. It's going to inventory. And that's it. Well, rent in, in, first of all, inventory purchases are completely discretionary, so that's crap. Um, uh, rent is an unsecured creditor. Landlords have other rights. You're going to lose your you're going to lose your leasehold at the end of the day, but they're an unsecured creditor. Uh, she's an unsecured creditor, and the partner's an unsecured creditor. Who says you have to pay one one of these parties and not the other? Okay, that's super aggressive. It's gray. A lot of you, maybe even me, might think that's unethical but it would certainly get everybody's attention and it would pay back 40 out of 60 of the construction loan issue that this person has. She was dead set against that, by the way, and I don't blame her one bit. I advise her to do uh, the demand letter because it, it creates a trigger, but it also hits goal number two. And goal number two is to set the, set the table for a discussion. Would we rather have a discussion about $30,000 liquidation value of inventory, which, you know, I made up is probably less than that. Or the fact that the corporation owes me $140,000, pay me my $140,000 or we're shutting this thing down and I know you don't want that to happen. That's a better conversation, right? Because at the end of the day, this is about how much will the partner pay Mary to go away? So Mary can go and pursue her dream in a happier situation. Or if the partner's not willing to do that for the partner to go away, right? And setting this bogey of the $140,000 has a significant persuasion uh, impact on that in my view. What I would have done under those three choices uh, and still would do is serve that demand letter and then see where we go from there. Um, and of course, I'm someone that can uh, be nimble and think a few moves ahead, as I said. And uh, Mary can put together a team, specifically me, to help her do that that's how I would go about this. So some things to remember, some other lessons that came out of this for the Martinis with Scott uh, audience. No shareholders agreement. You have to have a shareholders agreement. I'm going to look up some stats on how often these partnerships fail, but it's a lot. 
Maybe I'm skewed. Maybe it's only the ones that fail to come to me and the ones that are great and successful never come to me. But it seems to me you need a prenup. And as you know, specifically the uh, the shareholders agreement deals with how you break up these sorts of partnerships. We'll do a quick shot on someday on what goes into uh, what goes into shareholders agreements. If you are lending money to your own business, you are a creditor. You have a creditor hat. Let me ask you a question: If you're lending, if you were a third party and this business of Mary's and her partner came to you and said, "I need one hundred and forty thousand dollars." Or let's just focus on the construction loan, quote unquote, $80,000. I need an $80,000. Would you give that money to them unsecured or would you behave like a bank and attach security to that over the business so that if things go wrong, you're the first person to get the money back, right? You're, you're number one in that pecking order, in the priority order of creditors uh, that I keep talking about. Well, the answer is obviously, if you had any you know, sophistication to you whatsoever in business experience, you're going to want that as a secured loan. If you own your business, that doesn't change. You can still be a secured lender to your business. Okay. You need to do it properly. You need to paper it, but there's no way in hell that 80,000 should went into this business unsecured. It should have been a secured loan. And then this whole issue would have been moot because you would have acted on security, taken over the whole business and it wouldn't have been an issue. All right. Fatal flaw, no shareholders agreement. You're going to lend money to your own company. Be a secured creditor. Don't be an unsecured creditor. Remember, you're wearing different hats and you need to treat them. I think I've hammered that point home a lot in this story. Um, the value of shares. If you can't pay your creditors and you can't pay your employees, the value of your shares are zero today. Okay. Uh, value is perspective in nature. It means it's, it's forward looking. Let's say you've got zero, 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 like for this year, next year, next year, there's, there's zero money going to shareholders. And then in year five, there's a hundred million dollars on your projection going to your shareholders. Well, maybe there's some value in the shares today then, right? Cause you're looking forward, you're discounting for risk and you're discounting for time. Okay. But this is a retail store. That's not what's happening. Uh, things might get a little bit better, but the bottom line is as a rule of thumb, if you're insolvent, your shares aren't worth anything. Stop talking about buying them from somebody else. And the last message, just to repeat, I already said this is your dream, your dream of being an entrepreneur is not tied to this failed corporation. You know, move on, separate those two. And when, and I have to tell you when we talked to Mary, when I talked to Mary about that, that was about a 20 minute conversation. Um, my God, it was like a weight was just lifted off her shoulders. She says, you know, you're right. I can do this. I can do that. I could do these other things. I'm so focused on this problem that I have. I'm not thinking clearly about other ways that I can pursue this passion and this dream. Thought you would enjoy that story. Um, let's move on. What else happened this week? Uh, I sat through a call with uh, someone, and I won't name any names or give any context, uh, but a call with uh, a business owner who's in some trouble and was talking to a new lender, a prospective lender, and he, a bank. And he was trying to get the bank uh, to finance them. And and what we spent, what he spent all his time talking about, and I, you know, I love this guy. I think he's a, a terrific business owner, a terrific entre entrepreneur. He's been beat up and he's been really beat up by COVID. And it ought to be a, an amazing business. And, but he's, you know, he's in some trouble. 
And what he spent all his time talking about was, was being a victim um, of the trouble, right? And his prior bank uh, is being unreasonable and he borrows some money, you know, over here uh, on a, from a non-bank and he's paying too high interest rates and the interest rates are just killing him and the professional fees are killing him. And, uh, you know, the prior auditor restated some financial statements and by restating financial statements, uh, it killed him more because it wiped out the borrowing base that the bank was using. And all of that stuff is probably true. But if you're the view bank, what, what message are you receiving? How are you being persuaded by listening to this? Are you saying, wow, this guy's really been a victim. I feel, I feel sorry for him and I want to help him out. Or are you hearing, here's somebody who's blaming my competitor for getting him in trouble. And I know that my competitor is pretty sophisticated and pretty much does the exact same thing that I do. What's going to happen to me when I loan this fellow money, right? Why did he agree to those interest rates if he, if he now says that those interest rates are killing his business, right? Why did he sign off on the audited statements, which are company statements, they're not the auditor statements. Why did he sign off on those if, if uh, he doesn't believe them in the changes that the auditor made, right? That's what you're hearing as a banker on the other side of that conversation. Stop being a victim, okay? We've done many shows. I'll do more on a top 10, top 10 list of how to turn around a business, top 10 on how to refinance the trouble of business. And the top two in each of those is, is find out what your trouble, figure out what your trouble is, okay? And in this case, their trouble clearly is COVID. And also their finance and accounting department sucked and needs to be fixed because you've got a combination of businesses shutting down or being significantly scaled back combined with poor reporting and poor planning, right? So find out what the problem is, uh, find out who's responsible for that and get rid of them, right? So, you know, get rid of your CFO, get rid of your controller, even if it's great and it's always great. It's never one person's fault, but you need to make change. You need to make change within an organization uh, to, sorry, to persuade people within the organization that you're taking this serious and we need to do something different. And you need to make change to persuade the external stakeholders like your new bank that we've identified the issue. We're not a victim. We screwed up. Our department wasn't good enough. We didn't plan. We did some things. You know, I shouldn't have let the auditor do that. That's my fault. We shouldn't have incurred those interest rates. That's my fault. We weren't ready for COVID. That's my fault. And when I say my fault, I mean this guy over here in this accounting department and we're making changes and and that's why things are gonna be better. It's a persuasive pitch, you're affecting change and it allows your new lender or your new stakeholder, whoever you're talking to, it allows them to got buy in and go along the ride, go along with the ride of the turnaround and the rebuilding of this business. And it's important internal as well because your employees wanna know. Your employees don't wanna hear, hey, we're victims. They don't wanna hear that because no one believes it, even if it's true. Even if you believe it in your soul that you're a victim, even if you are a victim, that's what business is about. Things are gonna happen. You can't control the bad things that happen to you. You can control your response. Um, uh, so take responsibility, identify the problem, make changes, convince the outside world and the inside world that you're making changes and, and move forward. That's my advice on that. What else do I have here? Um, mind medicine. Um, 
This is the um, Psychedelics uh, public company under the symbol MMED. I believe I did a show on them before. I feel like I did. Here's been my trading, my, my entire investment thesis since uh, June of 2019 uh, when uh, CanTrust hit the press. Uh, CanTrust is in the cannabis sector, did a bunch of shows on them. And I tell everybody jokingly that I'm, uh, I'm short. I'm short weed and long shrooms. Uh, which is uh, which is precisely true. I've just been, you know, at our firm, we've been shorting uh, cannabis stocks since uh, mid last summer. Everything that I could find volume in, um, and where there's enough room to go down. So I wrote CanTrust Forever and made hundreds and hundreds of percent on that in a short period of time. I've been riding Aurora, which has been a bit of a bust. I think we started when it was in its low twenties recently, and I think I don't know, I think the sixteen seventeen. Uh, today, somewhere in that range, it's been okay, but it hasn't been outstanding. But I still think that's that's got a long way to drop. I just need to find the right vehicle uh, or, or uh, tool, financial instrument to short that with. And I've been long um, psychedelics, and specifically, uh, we've got a lot into uh, into my medicine, a little bit into something called Champion brands, Champion, the the French mushroom, I guess. And uh, Champion's doubled since we put it in. It's got a hundred percent. Uh, growth there in the last couple of months and I think uh, we got them pretty cheap on MMED but we're up say 20% um, which I think in this world's a bit of a bust even though it's 20% real returns over you know a few months so but I did a show on this and I said you know I, I think I did a show the day that they were going public and I said I know nothing about this company I love the space because I think it's a really important space nothing to do with recreational this is all FDA tested drugs for dealing with anxiety and depression and addiction and all these terrible things, which are just becoming more and more of an issue in society, particularly coming out of COVID. The mental health is a huge issue. And so and there's just such such a strong body of anecdotal evidence that, uh, that psychedelics, not just mushrooms, but uh, LSD and a bunch of other things. Um, bunch of other products that I don't know anything about. Uh, MMDA, I think, would be one of them. Um, I don't know my drugs, as you can tell, thankfully. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, there's, there's such strong evidence anecdotally that these things have a great effect. So I did a show when they're coming out and I said, I don't know anything about this, but I love the space. And I do know some of the people, they're not buddies of mine, but I know who some of the people are behind this. So this could be a great promote. And I did a show that was really focused on the idea that you know, at an early stage public company and a startup, you need, well, not necessarily a startup, but in a high growth situation, you know, the business is the business and the value of the business is the value of the business. It almost has nothing to do with the value of the stock, which can be promoted or not promoted. So you got to have a business worth lots of money and their stock sucks, right? Or you can have a business that is, you know, questionable, AKA look at all of the cannabis stocks in Canada in the last three years. And you can have great promotes on the stock to create billions of dollars of market cap um, on, on hope, on a prayer, on a wish, um, on the promotion skills of the promoters behind these stocks. And so we talked about that. It's always true. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go heavy into this, uh, my medicine because of the people behind it and there ought to be a good promote. Well, I'm here to tell you I was wrong. I was wrong about that. Um, and the investment's been fine. It's been better than fine by any normal standard, but uh, I was wrong. I, and all you have to do, check out on YouTube on the Mind Medicine, Mind Medicine uh, July 5th shareholder update, uh, which is what I watched the other night. 
having a beautiful cigar and a drink. And they have their co-CEOs on there and it was about an hour long. And they talk about how they are a data-driven drug company. The psychedelics are incidental to that. They're focused on, on, on psychedelics, but it doesn't have to be um, a psychedelic. And they're data-driven and they're picking up uh, data all over the world from uh, uh, trials and tests. And man, it was an awesome, sober presentation. Holy crap, it was boring. It was so boring. It was unbelievable. I could barely listen to it. All I thought was, these guys are awesome. I mean, these guys really know what they're doing. Um, they seem to know their science. I believe they're going to build value in this company over time. But I can't stand listening to them. It is so boring. There is no vision. There's no excitement. And I don't know if they're naturally like that or maybe they're overcompensating because if you're you think you're going into the psychedelic space maybe you ought to go exactly the opposite and and create a counterbalance so everybody doesn't think you're crazy maybe there's some of that going on but you you compare this presentation which was just painful and you compare it to pick any entrepreneurial hero you like pick elon musk i'm going to mars right easy to understand massive vision he's got tons of passion he, he allocates his time based on those, those huge goals and the multiple companies that he runs. I'm going to Mars. Compare that to, uh, you know, we may win, we may not win. We're data-driven. We'll see where it goes. We're not making any promises. I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible and it was boring. If you're an entrepreneur, do not be boring. Have someone on your team, and it better be your leader, who has passion, who has vision, and who communicate that. And that doesn't mean you don't need substance. You need the substance behind it. But my God, you can't be boring. Here's something. This company, Mind Medicine, has a $160 million market cap. Uh, it's, uh, where are we? July 8th today. I think I watched this yesterday. July 7th. Something like that. On YouTube, they had 381 views on their hour-long presentation. 381 views. I have some martinis with Scots with uh, well over 1,000 views on them. Um, this is a $160 million market cap company. Do you think they're generating any passion? Do you think there's a provoke here? I'm selling that stock as soon as I have a better idea. I don't think it's going down very far. And I do think there's going to be a decent investment if you want to hold it for the long term because I think they're a good, solid management team. But uh, if you're looking for if you're looking for excitement and a quick hit, uh, uh, I called this one wrong. See, I can tell you that. So a quick update on the Novani turnaround. I started the uh, Novani um, uh, file last week. Um, and as I told you, I walked you through how uh, we bought this company and I promised to take you along at the turnaround journey. I don't have a ton to add this week. I'll just hit a couple of uh, points. When you're dealing with turnarounds, you have a bunch of people that are not paid. And, and the theme of this week's update on Novani is people that have not been paid. First off, we looked at key suppliers. So we go through our unsecured payables list and I went through every one of them with the company this week, which took a long time. And I created, you know, my ABCs of creditors and A's for me are always, we need these people. Uh, we need their supply. We need them every day. We don't have an alternative and uh, we need to keep them current and not have a negotiation with them. B's Suppliers to me are people that would be nice to have. They're redundant suppliers. Um, it'd be good to have them if we could negotiate that back debt, but they're not critical to operations, and I'd like to have a discussion with them. 
And C's are people where I'd just be happy if we never, you know, not that I'd be happy because people ought to be paid. But when you step into a situation, you're never going to talk to that company again. Um, right. They're not on the top of your list of things to deal with. Right. So we went through, uh, we separated into our A, B's and C's. This is something you can call it whatever you want, but this is, if you're in a trouble situation, here's what happens. If you're a business owner or an entrepreneur and you're in trouble, nine times out of 10, if you got $10,000 that you could pay to somebody, who do you pay it to? Do you pay it to the supplier that gives you the goods so that you could turn that into a product that you can then sell for $20,000 and start getting back on track? Is that what you do? Nope. Do you pay it to a fixed charge overhead, like a, like a salary or a rent or a lease payment or something along those lines? Maybe, maybe you do that. And did that help you? Nope. The only thing that helps you is driving forward uh, and create, getting the raw materials if you're in a manufacturing business like Novani is and selling them and start getting your turnover going again. Um, so you might use it for a fixed charge, which is a mistake, but here's what most people do is they pay it to the last guy that phoned them and screamed at them, right? They put out the last fire. Someone screams and yells or tells them a soft story, even worse. And you say, ah, oh, listen, listen, I know I owe you $40,000. I've only got 10. I'll send, I'll send you six of it, you know, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. And I'll hear the same complaint and the same screaming, yelling, the same soft story next week, right? Or that supplier threatens to sue you or just sued you and to try and you know drag that out you take that last ten thousand dollars and you give it to them and you're out of money right that's exactly the wrong thing to do you should always go through what i call my a b's and c's call them your one two threes call them whatever the hell you want you need to put the money towards a hundred percent of the money towards driving the business forward and you need to find a way to drag everybody else out so that they can all participate fairly with their priority order, with their pecking order, they can participate in the business that is being regenerated by allocating funds to where they need to go, which is driving things forward. So that's what we do with our suppliers. And I think I'm looking at my emails as I'm talking here. You know, it's boiled down to three key suppliers. Uh, I, I, we've got sign off on one, so we're good to go. Um, I believe I'm going to have sign off tonight from a second that's in Asia. Uh, so you know, it's 6 p.m. here, it's probably 6 a.m. there. Um, but I think we're good on that, and they'll know in the morning. And then the third one, I believe to be easy, but I haven't heard back the third key one that I want to deal with this week. And so I'm just going to proactively give myself 100% success on those negotiations. And uh, and that's great, because now we can start filling orders instead of this huge backlog that we have. And that's the key to turning around the business. Um, had a discussion with the second secured lender at this company, which is uh, which is a, a bank in Canada, a Crown Corporation, and um, and it, they were very unhappy this week. They were very unhappy because they have a change of control uh, covenant in their loan agreement, and of course we bought the business, and the company didn't bother to tell the bank, and so now that's in default, and who the hell am I, anyways? And they haven't gone through their their AML, their anti-money laundering stuff, and they're owed uh, X, and uh, they're going to demand on it. So we talked last week. Uh, that was their conversation, say, Monday, Tuesday. 
when I was on the phone with them, you know, we talked the week before Martinis with Scott about the Novani structure of the purchasing, which is, you know, job number one is you need to protect yourself. You need to get the upside, but you need to protect yourself. How did I protect myself? We bought the first secured debt, which means I rank ahead of the second secured debt. So, secured debt. so what is my answer to someone that says we're going to demand and, and, and therefore put you through a receivership? My answer is cool. My answer is cool because you're owed X. And if we were to liquidate the assets on which you have security, you're going to get one tenth of X because that's, and I'm making that number up. That's probably generous. Um, you know, really old manufacturing equipment, which they have a specific charge on. Um, I get to drive the bus because I have the first secured. And that means it's my receiver, not your receiver. I get to operate the business do that. Uh, through that. I get to put this into a new company. I get to leave all my old creditors behind. Um, which makes my restructuring way easier and you get a tenth or maybe less of what you uh, otherwise think you're out. So if that's what you want to do, have at it. As an alternative, um, I'm going to pay you your interest and debt service on this gross amount of money for the next uh, two, three months. And we're going to figure out what our business plan is and then we're going to come back and talk about it. To which they said, yeah, okay, that seems like a reasonable plan. And they sent me over the forums for the anti-money laundering and we'll see where we get to. Look, I like these guys. Um, I like the institution. Um, I like the people behind it. And they have a point. They have a point. They, they've had no reporting from this company. They should have been told. Uh, they should have had sign off uh, from the vendors, from the original owners of the business. Uh, but they didn't. And if I'd had more time, we would have dug into this and done some due diligence on these guys. Um, and we would have done it for the company in advance. But when the receivers walk into the door and you're trying to get things sorted out quickly, you don't always have time. So that was that negotiation. Uh, I have a rep base at Novani. So these are salespeople and we see this in a lot of companies that we get involved with that are troubled. You know, so these reps are sitting in various jurisdictions and, and uh, in Novani's case, they seem to do two things. Uh, uh, one group of them, are in the commercial sort of wholesale side. So they're dealing with wholesale plumbers and uh, large commercial, you're building a you know, multi-unit uh, condo building and you need a bunch of our sinks and what have you. And so you're not gonna go to Home, Home Depot and buy those, you're gonna buy those uh, on a different plan and you're gonna buy them through a rep who's out selling to those sorts of projects. And of course the reps haven't been paid in six months, uh, which makes them very angry. You know, salespeople are, you know, to be a good salesperson, you have to you have to have some passion and some emotion, and so that works two ways. If you if you think you're not being treated fairly, they become an unruly group, and they're unhappy and they're angry. And I had one of them call me just yesterday and tell me exactly that that he was unhappy and he was angry and that he is the ringleader for a group of these reps. So here's what I learned long ago, and I learned on a file called Applied Carbon. Uh, which run a graphite ran a dormant it ran a graphite mine uh, out of Kearney, Ontario near the uh, near the Gawkman Park and when I bought into the public company well bought the public company the control block it was a, it was a dormant mine uh, so it was closed had some environmental liabilities uh, had a great US operations which is what I was after and also the tax losses in Canada longer complicated deal but such a great trade and and had some stuff to liquidate, some old, like a ball mill and some other mining equipment in Canada. And it had, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but let's call it a million dollars of old suppliers to the mine, uh, you know, small mom and pop shops from Northern Ontario. 
and they were owed a million dollars. And again, I'm making up the number. Actually, I think it was more like 800,000, but whatever. And you know, the, there was no business, uh, but there was some stuff to sell off. And the, the bottom line is they were gonna get zero. Like there was just, there was no money and there was no business. <laughs> and, and someone actually, I had to physically go in to try to figure out how to dismantle and sell a ball mill to get any money out of this thing whatsoever. And so they were gonna get zero. And they were gonna get zero. They had been unpaid for you know three years before I showed up, nothing to do with me. And I was young, and I think that was my first major deal as a principal. I'd done lots as an investment banker before, but I was young, and you know, I started calling some of these people, and they're angry, and they're pissed, or they forgot about it. And, and I thought to myself, like, I'm gonna work my ass off, and I'm gonna help these people, and I'm gonna be a hero. And I did exactly that. I put myself on the line, I worked hard, I communicated, and I ended up getting them 20 cents on the dollar, more or less, don't hold me to the numbers so, so, so long ago, but I got them about 20 cents on the dollar and I thought, wow, these people were going to get zero. They're, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and family businesses and small remote communities. And I've done a good thing for these people. And you know what? They didn't see it the same way. Here's what happens. You're still an asshole because they didn't get paid all their money and they didn't get paid it on time. You're not buying goodwill. And that's a hard fact that you need to understand when you're restructuring companies is is you can try to, there's the math which says this creditor is worth X and this creditor should get X and this should, creditor should get Y. And if you do more than that on the premise that you're gonna buy some goodwill, it doesn't work. You're not buying goodwill. Well, the same goes for reps, right? So what are these reps doing if they're pissed off and angry, which is what they tell me? Well, I'll tell you what they're doing. They're doing nothing. I've never talked to them to find out. I'm just telling you from my experience is they're doing nothing they're tainting the market, right? So they're going out and saying, don't buy from these Novani people, they don't pay me, they're bad people, right? And then, and, and it's got nothing to do with me, I just showed up two weeks ago, so I'm not the one that did this to them. But I guarantee you that's what they're telling the market. And then what they do is they sit around and collect their commission checks on sales that were gonna happen anyways because stuff is happening in their territory and we get some of that business, right? So they get money for free, they taint the market and they create unhappy negative vibes. That's my experience uh, with these, you know, with these rep problems that you inherit. And, and by the way, I'm not saying they're wrong. I mean, these people have, they worked and they haven't paid in six months, right? I mean, it's a real problem. I didn't create the problem, but it's a real problem. And if I were in their shoes, I might be unhappy too. So here's my message to the reps that I've been to, you know, the ones that, well, first of all, I haven't proactively called any of them yet because I don't want to call people and make promises. I just want to perform. If you work for me, you're going to get paid. Okay. It's not a promise to fix the back problem, but you're going to get paid. So if you work for me, uh, starting June, uh, <clears throat> so the commissions in June are paid, say 30, 45 days later, we're going to pay June. We're going to pay July. We're going to pay them on time. We're going to pay them all going forward. I have no idea what I'm going to do with the back debt at this point. I don't know. It may need to be restructured because it's a lot of money and we can't afford to pay it. But if you want to be part of the team and you want to collect that money going forward, you need to perform. And we haven't had those conversations yet with anybody, but that's what the conversation is going to be. Because if all you're going to do is taint the market and complain and be angry and you're never going to come out of that mindset, I'd rather just get rid of you.
and we'll fight about the back debt and we'll restructure it and we'll do, you know, if my second secured creditor puts me through a receivership, then that back debt goes away. People should get paid for the work that they're doing. But the whole point of being an insolvent company is you don't have enough money to pay everybody. You're forced to pick and choose. Okay. It's a tough decision. It sucks. I don't like it. You don't like it. They don't like it. But that's life. That's business. You need to make tough decisions. You can't let people, you're not going to buy their goodwill. You pay all that bad debt. Do you think they're going to be happy reps? reps? Um, and they're going to go out and say, hey, you know, this new guy's awesome. This new guy's awesome. I got all my money and the supply chain's fixed so we can deliver and this is great. Let's go back to work. You think that's going to happen? Probably not. Might happen for 10% of them, but 90% of them, it's not going to happen. So we have to, we have to work our way there and see where we get to when we started that process this week. All right, I see I uh, thought I had 10 minutes of contact, content and I'm an hour and five into this, so we'll defer the rest of this uh, for another show. That's all I have for you. Cheers again. I hope you enjoy your Thursday evening. This has been Martinis with Scott, or tonight has been Scotch with Scott, and um, we're a show about winning momentum in life and in business. Please subscribe. Uh, it helps me a lot. Uh, to have subscribers keep this content generating. When we get to 1,000 on YouTube, I understand we can start doing them live again, which would be uh, fun. I don't know if we will, but it'd be fun. Uh, I'd like to be able to do that. So please subscribe. We're on YouTube, uh, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.